Hello everyone, welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad that you are joining us today. A Reason for Hope, in case it's your first time with us, is an hour-long live broadcast which is guided along by your questions on the Bible, God's Word, the Bible. That's right, you can join us on multiple online platforms that I'll be going over in just a moment. Send in your questions through the chat functions on those aforementioned platforms and I, your host, will be receiving those questions, Lord willing, and send them out here to our guests to delve into God's Word to find the answers to those questions. So it could be a verse or passage of Scripture that has confused you, you'd like it explained a little bit more, what it means, what uh, God's heart was for those um, passages of Scripture, maybe even something you're, you're going through in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective on a situation that you find yourself in, uh, maybe Christianity as a whole or the Bible as a whole, maybe even other religions and worldviews and how they compare to what uh, Scripture says, what the Word says, anything along those lines, as long as it's an honest question from the heart and as long as you know, like I said, the Bible's where we find the answers on the show. That's what we're here to do. My name's Dave Robson. I'm your host today. And like I said, I'll be fielding those questions as they come on in. With me today, just the two of us, we can make it if we try. Pastor Sean Richards, how are you doing today? Considering the implications of that reference, but other than that... <laughs> yeah, don't think about it too much. <laughs> Done. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for your faithfulness to this show, giving your time to this um, this hour for uh, people to um, hopefully grow in the Word and the knowledge of God and all that good stuff. So thank you for doing this. Hopefully. Hopefully, yes. Well, we know he's faithful. He's faithful indeed. Well, as I mentioned, Reason for Hope, it's a live uh, broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. here, Mountain Standard Time in Tucson, Arizona. It's where we're broadcasting from. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. So keep that in mind when you're trying to find us. Uh, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com is our website. That's a good home base for you, especially if you're someone that doesn't like to be on social media. Um, we, we are live on our website, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. If you go to that Watch Live tab, that will take you out to uh, our live page where we're streaming to and uh, do have a little click around our website, especially if you're in the Tucson area. If you're looking for somewhere to fellowship, you're welcome to come and, and join us at Calvary Christian Fellowship. The details of our services will be on the website there. We have Sunday services and a Wednesday evening service. We teach the Word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, as a lot of uh, Calvary chapels do. And again, you're welcome to come join us if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship. But once again, if you click on that live tab, that will take you to where we're streaming live. Or you can type in ccftucson.online.church straight into your uh, browser address bar there, ccftucson.online.church. We'll take you to our live page. You'll see our video. You can sign in with a username and um, uh, send your uh, questions in through the chat function there. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next live show and a schedule of upcoming uh, events as well. So you can plan to join us for some of those if you would like to. We're on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson, or just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We'd appreciate it if you like and share while you're there um, so we can spread this ministry. We'd love to get the word out uh, literally um, so do uh, uh, partake in that. But so uh, yeah, we're on Facebook. That's another way you can send your question in through the chat function. I'll be keeping my eye on that as well. We have an app for your mobile device. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store. That red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo is our app. You can download that. Watch us on your iPhone or your Android or your iPad or you know those mobile devices. And we have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well. So if you have that capability, uh, add us as a channel in your channel store, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you can watch us on your on your big screen. 
Uh, we're on YouTube as well, live on there as we speak. If you look for A Reason for Hope, that's the name of the channel, A Reason for Hope. We are live there. And once again, send your questions in through the, uh, the chat, the comments um, that's attached to the video there. And I'll be checking on those throughout the show as well. Um, and it's a great place to go for archive if you missed a show or you'd like to uh, recap a question maybe for your own study. If you go to that live tab, um, it's archived there for you. So that's a good resource for you on YouTube. Once again, don't forget to like and subscribe and uh, that notification bell. If you click on that, you'll get a little prompt every time we are live. So a reason for hope on YouTube. Our senior pastor here, Pastor Scott Richards, is on Twitter. If you're on the Twitter platform, uh, you can follow along with him, Scott R4H. Uh, Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. Uh, he posts highlights from the show and um, also a lot of commentary on world events. There's so much going on in the world as it pertains to the end times that we're in, um, prophecy and things like that. Things that obviously line up with the word. Um, so it's a, a real interesting uh, thing to follow along with him on Twitter if you're on there. And some funny things and shenanigans and tomfoolery, as he would say too. So Scott Arthur H on Twitter, if you'd like to follow along with Pastor Scott. We're on Rumble as well. We're not live on there, but we post um, uh, videos on there, archives and other things for your viewing pleasure. Um, so a reason for hope on, uh, on Rumble, reason for hope Bible Q&A there on the Rumble platform. And last but not least, we have an email address as well, questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope, spelled out all lowercase at gmail.com. Uh, send your questions there as well, and we check on that. And of course, you can send that to us any time of uh, day or night or the week, and uh, we will be receiving those. If you join us on the radio, we're glad that you're you're listening along, drive safely and all that good stuff, but you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded, so we're not live with you on the radio, but all those other platforms, we are live. But again, keep that email address in mind, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we will get to that question on our next show. So yes, send your questions in, please do. We love your questions. It, we never know where the show is gonna go. It's just based on your questions, so we appreciate those. And for you being part of the show here, get them in early, and we'll try and parcel out this time uh, poor, poor Sean here has his work cut out for him but does a wonderful job and <laughs> we've we've been here before how huh? just the two of us we've done this we've done this you and I and yeah. the Lord the three-quartered strand and all that good stuff <laughs> so well would you like to pray for us considering the abundance of options <laughs> that's right <laughs> dad thank you that we have the chance to be here we don't have anything to share but we ask that we receive it not only to share your word but your heart with your people allow them to be exhorted edified and comforted and thank you that we can be a part of the process continue to let your mercy abound in our lives and continue to do a work where we can demonstrate your power as well we pray this in jesus name mm -hmm. amen 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 well, we had a question uh, left over from yesterday. So before I, I check all those um, social media platforms, I thought we'd address this question from Mac D. Um, he asks, how do you counter self-righteousness? I felt more humbled when struggling with sin, knowing I have a problem. I thought maybe maybe you could define like what righteousness is, because righteousness is kind of a, a religious word that you know you don't really hear in the world all that much. But we talk about it a lot, obviously, as Christians. Righteousness mm -hmm. is very important. but but what is righteousness? What is self-righteousness? And how, Max question, how do you counter that? How do you, you stop yourself from becoming self-righteous? Well, I think the self is the answer, but the question's good. Uh, when it comes to 
countering self-righteousness, usually the equal and opposite mistake people make is they resort to self-abasement or self-deprecation and think that if I focus on myself from another angle that that will somehow offset the mistake, which is focusing on myself. The self-centeredness is the issue there. So when we're talking about self-righteousness, it's again just one more angle taken at the same mistake. And when we're self-righteous, we're determining ourself as the standard for what makes us right. That's what righteousness means, right between us. It's a relational term, much like a lot of things in terms of our relationship with God. They're going to use those phrases in order to communicate our right standing with each other. Now, if I look at myself and I say, I'm good, I'm okay, I haven't done this specific pet sin, or I'm better than those people, then I'm using myself as a metric rather than what is the only right standing before God, and that is God himself. So a good counter for that is, first of all, to focus instead of on yourself, but as the author of Hebrews, Paul the Apostle, and plenty of others before and since have said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's Hebrews chapter 12. And another more direct example is in the book of Philippians chapter 3, where Paul the Apostle, who would, for all intents and purposes, had more going for him as far as himself is concerned, to look at himself and say, I am more right in my relationship with God because of the things that I've done, it would have been him. And he rightly stated that as far as the sect of the Pharisees was concerned, he was blameless. Yet, for whatever reason, he looks at that compared to Jesus, and uh, after a bit of colorful language as well to express his feelings about the matter, he says in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has all laid, also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended the self-righteous mistake. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal, this is what's ahead, of the prize, for the prize, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, people usually think, well, what is that upward calling in Christ Jesus? But they've missed, again, the whole point. To be in Christ Jesus is the goal. Going all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Abraham was reminded in Genesis chapter 15 that he, God speaking to Abraham, was his shield and his exceedingly great reward. So being in Jesus is what needs to be our metric for righteousness. Je being in Jesus needs to be considered our treasure and our hope. And full transparency in church or wherever you find yourself listening to this right now, I don't determine God as my treasure most of the time. There are moments where the Holy Spirit gives me a lot of grace to share God's heart, but they come as quickly as they go. What needs to be understood is that we, first of all, remember that old sottage from Lamentations, your mercies are new every morning. And like the prayer that we started with on this program, the more that you grow in your relationship with God, it's not going to be a matter of the less you sin. It's going to be determined by the time it takes for you to get back on your feet after noticing that you've put distance between yourself and Jesus, responding properly to when you fall. And there's some areas where I react 
borderline instantaneously. I've been given that grace by God. But there's other areas that he's allowed to continue in my life where I definitely need not only a lot of grace from those around me, but especially from the audience that needs it most. There's a quote-unquote humility in that, but once again, just like with righteousness, that word needs to be defined. Humility as opposed to pride is an honest perspective of yourself and others. And if we understand that apart from Jesus, if we're not in Christ Jesus, if we don't have that treasure, that reward, that ultimate payoff of our relationship with God, we're toast. As Bo Olet oftentimes says in our purity groups on Tuesday nights, if God didn't know what he was getting into when he saved you, that needs to be an assumption that we make before a single step's made. If there is, in fact, a right relationship with God, it's going to be not with God, us and him, getting along like buddies. It's going to be in God that he stands as his proxy of his righteousness rather than mine, because that's the only thing that we have before his throne. Now, humility will naturally come when you honestly assess Jesus compared to you. Pride won't have as much room to influence yourself and others when it comes to focusing on Jesus because there's less room for yourself. You can consider Christian growth as a better habit formed as far as whether or not he's the center of my attention. But Mac, and this is especially as true for me as well, when it comes to us struggling with pride, it's the, like C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, the sin that tends to grow in more influence the more attention that we give it. Now, you look at other sins, and like you said, I felt like I was closer to God when I was struggling the most with these sort of things, but now I worry, what is the next uh, struggle I'm going to have on the horizon? And those don't really have to occupy your attention if you don't want to let them. Focus on Jesus, and you've essentially summarized the Christian life. That's Christian growth. That's Mm -hmm. Christian learning. That's the emphasis of Scripture being in His Word. That's the audience of prayer. He is everything. If we don't have Him, we're toast, but because of Him, we have hope. And if that's the metric of your Christian life, then you have to worry about becoming a pharmaceutical Jesus fan, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because that's an oxymoron, by the way. The Pharisees weren't fans. Yes, Yes, indeed. Right. Well, what a great uh, topic to discuss, um, for sure. I mean, it's all really, uh, it all comes down to that, that righteousness and what we believe about it and how to attain it and all that good stuff. So thank you, Mac, for that. And I uh, hope that helps you out and guides you along there. Um, we had a follow-up question from uh, Hitton, but I think we kind of covered it yesterday. But specifically, we, we were talking about Jonah and the whale, whether that was true or a fable. But he's asking specifically, uh, do we know what the creature was that swallowed Jonah. I heard from a men's group that it was a supernatural encounter, uh, a fish created for that particular time and purpose. Uh, We don't know if the fish or the whale is currently in science today or if it was just used for that time and is extinct. I think you kind of touched on it yesterday. Yeah, Yeah, briefly, I'll just mention it in like less than a minute. Uh, We aren't told what specific genus or type that animal was. Uh, There is credence to this being a unique type of creature that God prepared for this specific event. But what people oftentimes miss in the account of Jonah isn't the bizarre nature of the sea creature and Jonah's excursion back from his way to Tarsus all the way to the coast, but um, the 
stubbornness of Jonah to last three days before he was able to share God's heart again, and even then. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the book of Jonah is an extremely well-rounded book of history. Uh, When we start looking for biological information in a historical and prophetic account, we're going to end up missing what's trying to be communicated to us. I understand it's oftentimes what's brought up first, but what our conversations need to be on is what we actually are told. Now, if you want to go the route, and people are really emphasizing that point in study group, I guess, I've been in those situations, and tangents and non sequiturs can lead to rabbit trails and so forth. I, I get that. But the emphasis of the book was preparation and judgment for the northern ten tribes of Israel and the fact, I guess a prequel, if you will, to the book of Nahum. So when we're talking about the crux of the emphasis, it's the probably third greatest, right behind Hosea and the Psalms, of God's heart emphasizing mercy and redemption above anything else. And when we take into consideration that fact, then as far as, well, what exactly was the uh, you know, nautical nature and uh, dimensions of the sea creature and so forth? Well, all well and good. Just make sure that, like we talked about yesterday, it brings you back to the person of Jesus because he himself said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but these are they which testify of me. If we should take anything away from the sea creature event, it should be a foreshadowing of the literal, historical time Jesus spent in the heart of the earth, just like Jonah spent in the belly of the great fish. If you have a slip of the tongue and reference it as a whale, and the text doesn't say it's a whale, that's the point. But if you're going to say, what's the significance of God preparing it? Is this a unique creation? Maybe. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff down in there that we don't know about. Right. <laughs> but what we can say is the stuff in here are things we need to know. And yeah. I can stick with that. Yeah, that's definitely a good perspective. Uh, great. Well, thanks, Hitton. I hope that, that helps you out. Thanks for following up with that. And again, if you missed the question yesterday, we, we um, dealt with that question. I don't remember whereabouts in the show it was, but if you rewatch yesterday's show in the archive. Um, thanks for being part of the show today. Um, we have a question from Sean. Not you, Sean, but another Sean. I guess there's two of you in the world. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Good evening to you as well, Sean. Uh, I've got a question. We've come to the right place. We are. Uh, where are we at in the end times? Where are we at in the end times? What a great question. Where are we at? Um, the two terms that are oftentimes used for the time frame that we're in and they get oftentimes misconstrued are the last days and the end times. Yeah. They can be interchangeable, but the last days or the latter days is an Old Testament term, believe it or not, that's referenced in reference in terms of the time of the Messiah when the anointed king, priest, and prophet of Israel would reveal God directly and personally and do a work unlike anything he had ever done to overshadow even the Exodus. Mm. That's the Old Testament prophet's testimony. Now with Jesus here, there's a fork in the road as far as perspectives of the last days is concerned. People will say, well, Messiah is here, so all of these symbols and references and these uh, regards for, you know, creation being brought back to an Eden-like state, they would either spiritualize, dismiss, or historize 
all of those things and say they're no longer relevant, this has been fulfilled on the church, some vague reference in church history, that maybe the wording of Josephus is the ultimate authority for how they'd interpret Revelation and just say the destruction of the temple was the end of it, now we're living in the quote-unquote millennium, whatever that happens to mean. Then there's those who take the other route and go, we're in the last days, but not the end times. And if you're wondering about the term end times, it's the time when things end. <laughs> the conclusion of those things is that as far as the stages of God's re- work of redemption, you had the, and this is a perspective called dispensationalism, if you care, the time of Adam, which was a lengthy time at that, around a thousand years, where he and his offspring were enjoying a borderline Eden state world, but leading up to a direct intervention of God and mm-hmm. his wrath demonstrated through the flood, mankind was permitted not only to continue in sin, but also given the open opportunity through the testimony of Adam to know a relationship with God. And Genesis 5 gives us an entire family history of people who responded to that call. They weren't the only ones, but they were certainly notable ones because little baby Noah came into this world through them. The second quote-unquote dispensation is noted as the time of Noah. The descendants who not only knew Noah, but Noah was alive, bornish, uh, around the time when Adam was still alive, and carrying on that testimony of God's revelation of himself to the world, they knew the revelation of God insofar as what they needed to know. The time after Noah was when, as the nations were dispersed, the Tower of Babel and all that nonsense, you finally have a revelation to Abraham, and him not keeping those things to himself, by the way, as he traveled from Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq, Iran, that kind of region of the world, all the way to Canaan, covering the span of the Middle East. He was a living witness of the work that God could do in a man's life, some for better, some for worse. Then the next dispensation was the time of the law, Moses, Israel, Joseph, the Israelites, and how God was working miracles through them as a testimony to all the nations. And an example of that is with Rahab. They noticed when God was doing something through them. They understood who God was and that he was a bit different in his dealings with mankind than their fake idols. Literally just served as an excuse to justify a bad habit. Then you had the dispensation the time of the prophets, the judges, that era of history where God still was performing miracles, but on a need-to-know basis. They had the revelation of God's word, the law of Moses, but needed to, as they, I guess, were departing from it, the time of Elijah, where it was illegal to be a follower of the true and living God. They were given more signs and miracles because none of them had access to or wanted to access God's word. He gave them what they needed. But you see these miracles happen as that was necessary. Then you get to the time of the prophets, emphasized on the prophets, from the time of Joel all the way to Malachi, where God's speaking primarily, making his revelation of himself in anticipation of the promised one to come. This isn't necessarily where you get the, the most significant. The most significant revelations of God's heart and his promises to come into this world were in Genesis and the Psalms. But definitely in bulk as far as they're concerned, narrowing down of details and Isaiah and Ezekiel and so forth. All these things where we can expect to figure out when God was going to reveal himself physically, personally to this world, like what was promised to Eve in Genesis 3. The seed of woman, not of man and woman, but a child born of woman 
who would crush the serpent's head to take away the power of sin and death from us forever. Mm. Then the dispensation that we're living in now, what's commonly referred to as the last days. This is when the final dispensation bordering the tribulation period, but it's included in that, would be when God's revealing himself to the world through his son. This is how the book of Hebrews starts. And our fathers who in various times and various ways were spoken to by the prophets have now been spoken to by his son, who is the fullness of his glory. You can see on and on it goes. But the last days as opposed to the end times, where we are is essentially the space between God's conclusive work of, it, of his dealings with Israel. You can go to Daniel 9 to see the culmination of that work. We're right before that event and after the revelation of God through his son and in the midst of that time period. What would put us towards the end of it, and I chose my words carefully there, is because unlike any other generation before us, we have seen the nation of Israel not only return, for the most part, to her homeland, become a nation as far as the standing of international borders are concerned. There's countries that are under the wrath of God that don't recognize them, but that's their problem. And, of course, we see that God's intending them to be there, that despite the efforts of Islamic and uh, communist nations to either politically or physically sabotage, undermine, and exterminate them, they have, for all intents and purposes, been living demonstrations of scripture. Uh, Hamas rockets being blown off course and as a result of a freak wind, and saying they're, the God of Israel is defending them. And all of these reports going into the miraculous events of the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, the Intifadas and so forth, all failing. In a country whose borders aren't too substantial, I mean, compared to the United States, it would be like the size of New Jersey, yet they're able to hold off onslaught upon onslaught, political manipulations and machinations like you wouldn't believe, propaganda bordering on insanity and going into, most importantly, the spiritual nature of this age, the ongoing hatred of the Jewish people and yet their unwillingness to bow and bend is a literal fulfillment of prophecy if you read Ezekiel chapter 37. But when we're talking about where we fit in this time frame, with Israel being physically restored, and I reference Ezekiel 37 specifically, we don't yet see them as the prophet Zechariah and John in the book of Revelation repeated and quoted, among many other things, that they would look on him, the Messiah, whom they pierced, and mourn for him as an only son. They were certainly, as far as the demographic is concerned, more affiliated or associated with agnosticism until very recently. Within the last five years, as far as a per capita, I'm not talking numbers, but as far as the total percentage of those with Hebrew ethnicity, and especially living in Israel, but around the world, more would call themselves messianic, meaning they believe that Jesus is their Messiah, that they are joining us in this time age, this dispensation that we call the church age, these last days. That's what would put them, as far as uh, demographics is concerned, as bordering on the fulfillment of this prophecy. We're also told that God still has a future work through 144,000 of them specifically. You can read this in Revelation 7, where they will be used to essentially outpace the evangelistic work of the church over the last 2,000 years 
in ways that couldn't be compared. And the book of Romans chapter 11 emphasizes that in detail. If their temporary separation from the direct work and purposes of God, not to say God wasn't working through them, mm-hmm. but their temporary separation, their alienation, has resulted in the blessing of the entire world with the gospel, how much more their fullness. Mm-hmm. And that's when we see is the conclusion of the end times, this final dispensation that we know as the millennial kingdom. So as far as like timestamps and events are concerned, you have the revelation of Jesus Christ, the 30, 33 AD event that we saw of his death and resurrection that has literally remapped the course of human history, mm-hmm. that has given us verifiable evidence documented without any re- <laughs> any reasonable doubt as far as whether or not there is a God in an afterlife and who's in charge of it. There have been counterfeits that have come along, and we were told to expect that, but that time frame is what started these last days. The restoration of the nation of Israel is the next big thing, and we saw that before mm. even you were born. Mm. So that's worth noting. The next thing that we would have as far as things to anticipate would be the tribulation period, the rapture of the church, the millennial kingdom, and so forth. But these are all just fancy terms to describe and emphasize God's dealings with us. Mm -hmm. And how he's dealing with us directly the last days is through the Son. Mm -hmm. And the tribulation will be an example of that, but in the context of wrath. What we're seeing today is a great, lengthy, and oftentimes over-exaggerated demonstration of mercy. And that's important to understand, too. But where are we at in the last days as far as those four major events the revelation of jesus christ the rapture of the church the tribulation period the millennial kingdom before all things are made new that would put us around 1.9 especially given the restoration of the nation of israel that's a super sign not needed a lot can happen as we have seen in recent history within the span of maybe two months to literally reshape how the world works. But we are close, and that's why not only is the emphasis or the exhortation in Luke 23 that we should count ourselves, or pray always, that we should count ourselves worthy to escape all these things, what things, the next thing, the tribulation tribulation, things, but even more importantly that we should, as Titus was told, look for and hasten the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've got four stages. We're right about on the edge of phase two, as far as the last days are concerned. There's been many other days before. There are still many days after us. But understanding our anticipation, the doctrine of imminency it's called, needs to be centered on that, of focusing on Jesus and how he's revealed himself in history. It's going to become less subtle (laughs) as time goes on. But it's not as if a direct showing up was subtle enough, and even then people come up with excuses. So where are we at? Right about there. Right yeah. about there. So right basically before the rapture, obviously we don't know. That's what's that's, next. That's, but that's what's next, yeah. yeah. And it certainly seems the days draw nearer and nearer with, like you say, the things going on, even just recent weeks and months in the world. Especially with Israel. Yeah, yeah, wow. And that's why we, you know, we, we do usually give a... Uh, an Israel update, especially when your your dad, Pastor Scott, is here, um, because he, as he expresses, it's uh, that's the place to keep your eye on as far as what's going on. Yeah, uh, Don Stewart, our good friend and uh, Bible teacher, said that uh, as far as God's prophetic time 
like not an analog clock, but like the hands clock. I don't know if people can still read those anymore, but <laughs> you have an hour, a minute, and a second hand. Yeah. Israel's the hour hand, Jerusalem's the minute hand, and the Temple Mount's the second hand. Mm. If something happens in relation to one or all of those things, we want you to pay attention to that. If you're just like, oh, there's this lady who can scan a grocery list with her hand, is that a, a sign of the end times? might be a foreshadowing of part of an aspect of it, but it's not that. Yeah. Uh, we need to focus on God's dealings with Israel because that's what we should anticipate next. Right. And beyond the facts and knowledge of that, obviously the knowing that nothing is yet to, uh, nothing needs to be fulfilled before the rapture should certainly affect how we live today. <laughs> you know, let's not forget these aren't just kind of facts to know. Um, history and, and, and knowledge, but lead us to um, to live that way, to look for the glorious appearing, I would I would think and hope. I mean, that's a challenge to me personally and hopefully to all of us as well. Um, you know, like I say, not just uh, head knowledge, but something that uh, bleeds over to how we actually live our life and, and walk with the Lord and serve and all those good things. Well, thank you, Sean, for your question. Thank you, Sean, for your answer on that. Hope that helps you out. A uh, question from uh, Vince. Wow, just a... Well, Kind of a heavy question here. Brace yourself. Uh, God punished Babylon, even destroying uh, children. Um, and uh, children, eventually Nineveh was destroyed, the flood of uh, Noah, Sodom, etc. Will children suffer eternally? Or does the second death mean real spiritual death? Uh, he quotes Matthew 25, 41 and Revelation 2, uh, 21, 8. So as far as children, honestly, it's a very, you know, a, a big or issue, heavy Matthew issue. 21, what? Uh, Matthew twenty five forty one. Twenty five. Yeah, I, I, that's just a description of hell. I don't know what that has to do with kids. Um, no, yeah, it's a fair question. The past you quote, he will say to those on the left hand, "Depart from me, you cursed, the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels." Um, he's addressing specifically an audience who will experience judgment for their acceptance or neglect to the people of Israel. If we want to do Schindler's List Junior. I don't know again if that has anything to do with kids. When it comes to the topic, and this is, oh, excuse me, the, uh, I think, real heart of the issue, the age of accountability, I think, right. is what's being asked about. Yeah. How's God going to deal with someone, A, who's either too young to know, excuse me, <coughs> uh, who's, um can't be expected or held to a level of accountability that would include a decision of salvation where mm -hmm. a judge a just judge would hold them to that. Right. Um, and then, of course, the idea of people who were the objects of God's wrath throughout history, but were, of course, in a place where they couldn't make that decision as well. What are the implications of that? Well, first off, when we're talking about what we don't know about God, we always need to fall back on what we do know. In the three contexts of, first of all, God's wrath, when people who were morally culpable were given charge not only of their own spiritual decisions, but when a parent is stewarding over someone as a child. And Dave, you can speak more experience from this as a parent. What you often have to remind yourself is this child isn't mine. They're on loan from the Lord. There are people who reject a relationship from God, but ultimately their standing with God is one that you have to take a step back from and allow them to decide or reject. And what's interesting about that in relevance to the question is that these children are capable of coming to their own conclusions after a certain point, and we'll get more into that in a second. The first thing that we need to remember 
about God is when judgment is falling, like we talked about yesterday when uh, I think it was Rich was asking about the Maui fires being the wrath of God or Hurricane Hillary or something, the wrath of God never took place without warnings, publicly accessible warnings, and warnings that were made clear, this is what's going to happen if you don't do this. The flood was not something that was done in isolation. The burning of Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't made unclear. The uh, destruction of Israel at the hands of Babylon, the Babylonians being overtaken by the Medo-Persians, etc., were all situations where the people invested directly in this were warned in advance. But what's also interesting to note is that if you mention the taking over of Babylon, the only people that got killed in that uh, exchange of power weren't even necessarily the military. Most of it were just the political figures. They were able to sneak into the city unnoticed. But that's another issue. And we're talking about the mass cleansings, exterminations, genocides, whatever you want to caricature it as. We fall back, first of all, on the fact that these warnings were public and that the kids who wouldn't be able to respond that's important to note. The second thing is that if you're going to allow the existence of the God who did those things, you need to also allow for the existence of the description of the God who did those things. We can't make God, as he presented and described himself, to both be and not be what scripture describes himself as. He did that, but forget the passages that explain why he did that and who he was when he was doing it, or his attitude. I'm going to fill in those details myself. That's deliberately manipulated and misrepresenting the text. When we're told in one of the examples that you gave, Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, Abraham was asking, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Now, that's a premise. That's an assumption. That was a hypothetical. Of course you're not going to judge the innocent with the the wicked. You're not going to judge the righteous and the evil. So Abraham gets into, interestingly enough, a bartering exchange with God and says, what if there are ten righteous people? in the city ultimately. And he said he would spare the whole city if there were 10 righteous. And I, interestingly enough, the only person that was found righteous was Lot. And you read the rest of Genesis 19, you realize he wasn't uh, all that of an exemplar as far as a family man is concerned. So mm-hmm. you take all that into consideration and then you ask, well, what are some other examples? Well, consider like we talked about with Jonah, the forestalling of Nineveh's judgment and the sort of things God was concerned about because the judgment of Nineveh proper wasn't just that city, it was the entire collection of cities that made up the Assyrian capital. What was God reminding Noah of, or Noah, Jonah of, another fish-related character, Jonah of when he said, would you have mercy on the plant, which you didn't plant, you didn't work for, came up in a day, died in a day, and yet you would see the destruction of not just that city, Nineveh proper, but the children, those who don't know their right hand from their left, and even the livestock. So in the context of what's being accused here, God being unjust, God targeting the innocent, the concept of collateral damage and a necessary evil on God's part. If I have to take out these bad guys, well, some kids are going to have to die too, and I'll just take that. I I can live with that, to quote the FBI agents, right? No, when we're talking about this, God had that in mind when he was talking about these things. And the question isn't whether or not, A, that God's capable of judging specifics, but B, 
how bad had the city gotten where even those kids couldn't be considered innocent. But then there's the third aspect, the moral culpability of the parents being shared on their kids and the influence that they had on them. This is the third and key detail. Actually, there's room for a fourth, I think. We got time. The third detail I think that's worth mentioning in all of this is if we go with more information, not less, if we go with God's character, his concerns, what he's mentioned in the context of judgment, mm. then we have to take a step back and go, okay, obviously didn't want to do this. Obviously he's capable of knowing when you had crossed a line, right? You look at Genesis chapter 15 and noting the covenant he made with Abraham. He said he was going to give the Amorites 400 more years before your kids were going to take over this land. And that's an important point to note as well. We ask the question, okay, if I can work with this, God's patient, abounding in mercy, slow to anger, yep. and abounding in loving kindness, if I can work with the judge of the earth, be, do, always doing what is right, yep. someone knowing not just the past and what they had done to warrant judgment, but the future, mm -hmm. what generations would continue to grow to be more and more corrupt was, and where's the line to cut it off, right. lest they just cause more harm than it's worth. And noting the kind of harm that we see in the world today, man, his patience a lot bigger than mine. Mm -hmm. We ask the question again, am I dealing honestly with the data of what we're told about God? Mm -hmm. And this is what brings us to another important feature, the revelation of God's character in flesh. When kids came along, did he treat them like adults? Did he say, well, you got to come to your own relationship with God too. Do you really know who I am? No, they came to be blessed by him. And what? The disciples withheld them and said right. that master's too busy. And Jesus says, don't you put distance between me and my babies. <laughs> said, Roughly what? translated. Yeah. Said, such is the kingdom of God. Yeah. So, and, and from that passage, we can read a lot into it and say, oh, all kids go to heaven. You don't know that. Yeah. But we do note that Jesus has a not only special deference, but a special awareness towards what a child would be in the eyes of God. And him, not just knowing the difference between a wicked city and unsavable city, yeah. and wherever they find themselves in between, but also someone who's morally culpable and someone who isn't. We, we bring this up oftentimes in the program, too. What about an adult who maybe has learning disabilities, who couldn't come to a saving relationship with God because they just lack the cognitive process, yep. right? Well, that's something that God will take into consideration. I can count on the judge of all the earth doing what is right by them individually, and that's the key. If he's going to universally judge someone, then as the one, and this is the final key point, this is Take notes on this if you're talking with atheists about this. Genocide in the Old Testament. When God gave life to whomever he chose and then exercised the right to decide when that life also returned to him, if it's done at an earlier state or a later state, if it's done in our timing or his, mm. why is it that he's the bad guy for exercising his sole prerogative as the giver of life, whereas we exercise this, this right, quote-unquote, frivolously, yeah. and say, say, for example, in war crimes being committed, or say, for example, in medical experimentations, abortion, and so forth. Why is it that when God plays God, he's immoral, but when we play God, it's just us exercising women's health care?
Yeah. And that's an important point to consider. As far as the age of accountability is concerned, and this is what brings it all back, know the character of God, know what Jesus revealed about him and having special deference towards kids, and then, of course, yeah. asking the question, when he judged, was it done in isolation, spontaneously, or with warnings in mind? Yeah. Then we need to ask, okay, on an individual basis then, what do we know about God's character in his dealings with people individually? Well, there's hints along the way that people have looked to the bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah means son or daughter of the covenant when people would be essentially required to either commit to the mosaic law or just be left to do their own thing uh, amish groups have tried to do something similar but what's interesting about it is that when they reached a certain age and again they have a set age but this is also worth considering as far as differences for people is concerned do they choose a relationship with God or not? And when they make that decision, are they held accountable for it or not? What happened in the meantime? Well, there are people who can stand before God in a condition where they weren't morally culpable and be covered by the same grace that those who did choose it were. The atheist will then step in and say the most horrible thing they mentioned that day and say, well, isn't then God doing them a favor? Why doesn't he all just kill us as kids so that that way we all go to heaven? And you're missing the whole point of why he gave us life to begin with. It's not to mitigate loss. It's not to prevent casualties. It's not to prevent us from making our own decisions. It's to glorify his name. And if we've reached the point where the only way he can be glorified is through judgment, that's on us. And we bear the weight of removing potential vessels of God's glory in doing so. That's why murder is such a heinous crime. But if, on the other hand, we then take a step back and go, would God know the time to take someone and wouldn't? Mm. Would God know when to draw a line with someone or even an entire civilization and right. say, this far and no farther? Yeah. Well, he'd be the only one. We, we look yeah. at uh, illustrations with Avengers Infinity War and Thanos taking the right into his own hand specifically to wipe out life in the universe so that the other half of life would have a better off time. Mm -hmm. And then we have the response from Gamora, no pun intended, and saying what? You don't know that. Yeah. And Thanos replying, I'm the only one who knows that. Well, God would actually be able to know. Yeah. And you need to take that into consideration. So age of accountability... There's theories, but I think God's going to deal with people individually. I can support that the most scripturally. The bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, and saying, oh, it's at 12 years old? Not necessarily. But the point of emphasis needs to be, we all have an opportunity to make a decision. God also bears the right to make a decision, and he's the only one whose decisions are informed about is the present, past, and future of the creation that he has given life to and can decide when to take it. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because the alternative is for me to not be okay with that, in which case I have to ask the question, what's your alternative? For us to determine when we live and die? Yeah. That's called atrocity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. God does what is right. That's what it comes down to. Very good. Very well laid out. Thank you, Sean. Uh, Vince, thank you for that question. It's a good question. Hope that helps you out. Very heavy topic, of course. A uh, question from Good Hope. Um, uh, follow up uh, on Hitton's question um, about uh, Jonah and the, and the whale. 
so to speak. Um, does that mean that God is not finished creation? I have heard that God is still in the process of creating, and not just human souls and through sex, but God is still in the process of creating. Is God still creating, um, or is he done with creation? Was that fulfilled? I think Genesis 2 begins in him resting from his creative work. If you want to have a scientific term for it, for God to introduce new matter would fundamentally alter the nature of the universe as we stand the existence of our universe in the material that it has and with the material that it has will and does stay that way until God lets it all go. Mm -hmm. But if on the other hand we're going to note God's prerogative to introduce new forms of matter at will, for example, the generation of the 12 loaves and two fish into feeding 5,000 men, not including women and children, that wouldn't be a quote-unquote bara, the Hebrew word for creating from nothing, what mm. we saw in the universe in Genesis chapter 1. Yeah. That would be an asa, him assembling, if you want to catch the term, uh, pre-existing matter but in a different form so if he were to prepare a fish I think he would like he did in his incarnation follow his own rules and play fair not my quote I don't remember who said it but the point I think stands yeah. if on the other hand we're gonna go to uh, goat we're going to note the goal of God creating or introducing new factors or rules like miracles it's not as if he's altered the laws of nature and we need to remember that He's introducing a new factor into nature in the same way that if this water bottle were left to its own devices, it would fall to the table unless my hand intervened. Mm -hmm. That's, in, not to, to oversimplify it, but the same thing we're talking about with a miracle. The only difference is God's intent for doing those sort of things is to specifically draw attention to his nature, to reveal something about ultimately the glory of himself and the Son. So yep. note those points. But if we look at the fish and say, oh, that was something that God created, let there be Jonah's sea creature. <laughs> Not necessarily. But once again, like we talked about with what kind of creature it is, that's not the point of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Focus on what the literary goal was and noting that the stuff in the sea is not even then, today even. Hebrews weren't fans of the ocean. That's why they referred to the Gentile nations around them as the sea right. and them as the land. Mm. That symbol picks up. It's God's prerogative to know what goes on in there. And, you know, with the coming out of Meg 2 and there being, spoiler alert, all sorts of dinosaurs and stuff underneath the Mariana Trench and all that, it's building a doctrine on something we don't know rather than what we actually are told. Yep. What we're told is that God's within his capacity to introduce a sea creature, whether he uh, you know, overfed the goldfish to accommodate Jonah, if you, you catch the <laughs> disturbing image, or... <laughs> I'm going to try that. Yeah, or to uh, just simply assemble something miraculously that was required, or that there's a creature down there that can accommodate a body. We mentioned three people in very recent history who were able to be accommodated temporarily by a fish and that uh, was a pleasant experience but yeah. that's the point yeah great thanks for that um yari let me get to your question thank you for restating your question i'm a little slow sometimes so thank you yari's question is uh, during the beginning there was not many people on earth and people were allowed to marry relatives will this happen again due to the tribulation period a third of the earth dies and will we go back to the law of Moses, or not actually law of Moses, but something similar? So will we go back to a time 
where there's, I mean, incest and marrying relatives and go back to some form of law. You sound like you're looking forward to it. Um, now, where, how do I go about this? <laughs> Very carefully. Well, you mentioned a third of the earth. It's going to be more than that, first of all. But we also need to take into consideration the fact that God is going to know who's going to survive and who isn't, that he can introduce new factors. And, of course, when we say, oh, well, as the world population's growing from, a, you know, maybe a couple thousand people, if we're speaking generously, the tribulation saints who survived, because we're told explicitly in Scripture that the people in glorified bodies in the resurrection neither marry nor are given in marriage. They're not going to sire children. So the only people right. who will repopulate the earth, according to this futuristic, literal, uh, dispensationalist, Zionist view of the end times, will determine the millennial kingdom will be repopulated from the survivors of the tribulation, which won't be easy. But if we're going to I guess, then take into consideration how will the earth function. Well, first of all, there's a few prophecies, um, not regarding incest, but regarding the nature of the law. Uh, God won't have to reveal his law anymore. Firstly, he'll be there, but secondly, mm. Jeremiah says that he'll write his law on our hearts. Mm. Uh, this is not only foreshadowing the Holy Spirit, but kind of describing how the state of the world's going to be when he sees it back to the way it ought to have been. Mm. Uh, and, and there's differing opinions, but we can leave that for another time. What's also interesting as far as what we're told in the circumstance of the millennium is that uh, Isaiah said that people will grow to be as old as trees, and that's a very large number if you know some of the trees that we've been able to date as far as their layers are concerned. And just like in the time of Genesis, people were able to maintain not just the capacity for bearing children for very long periods of time, but virility, the ability to do that as well. Uh, it's not like after they turned 100, they're just going to spend the next 900 or so going, oh my gosh, I want to die. Yeah. That's the point. So what will the world look like? How will the world function? Under the administration of Jesus, under his new system, not just of how our bodies will interact, but how people born into it will be functioning the way that our genome would, uh, whether that's a restorative work that will be the people who survive the tribulation won't be given glorified bodies, obviously, but a restored genome. If there'll be some intervention, all of the Holy Spirit for their offspring to be able to thrive in this new environment, whether it's the environment itself that will cause them to live so long. The absence of diseases and mutations and so forth, uh, advancements in medical technology since we don't have to deal with war, those are all theories that are put yeah. out there. Yeah. But the automatic inference that because at the creation of mankind that incest was given an exception to the rule, the same with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, there was no alternative, so therefore God didn't make it unlawful until the time of Moses because there were no other options. You have to read a bit into God reintroducing that system when he's already revealed in his law that you're only to have relations with people beyond a fourth generation from your household, and that's intentional. When we try to, and I don't say try to as to downplay it, it's a fair approach to recognize the wisdom of Scripture, but to say that God would renege on some of his revelation the revelation of God in the law is showing a perfect character in nature, knowing how to handle his people. So if you want to know, 
in detail what the marital situations and circumstances of the world are going to be. I wouldn't say it's too far removed from the people of Israel's time, and it's going to include that law because we're still in this fallen world. Whether or not, on the other hand, God's able to introduce new factors and that people who, despite being old, despite being uh, worn from age, despite people being in that new state, are going to be able to do things that wouldn't normally happen, Jesus will be there. So you have to take into that consideration some other factors. Don't uh, don't give cause for the people of God to be blasphemed or the Word of God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles by making those odd references. What we need to know is that God will repopulate the earth. How that will be done remains to be seen, but we do know it will be through natural marriage relationships and that the survivors of the tribulation will be in their complete and full capacity to do that. Mm. And I think that God's also capable of doing it in alignment with his character and nature. Because before Moses, that was permitted because there there was no other option. In the tribulation, just speculating, I could think of three other alternatives. Mm. So give room for that. Yeah, very good. A quick bullet question from um, Talon. Is there any significance in Saul's name being changed to Paul specifically? Um, the original name of Saul was a reference to the first king of Israel, and Saul's uh, passion and zeal for Judaism definitely reflected that. Him changing his name to Paul is humble. Uh, some people have mm-hmm. noted that as significant, but we aren't told specifically in the book of Acts or in any of the epistles why that name change took place. Oh, really? So you can ask him. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> when we see him in heaven, you can ask him. Yeah. I don't know. We should say that's all the questions. Just ask. When you get there, we can ask those questions. We're not Muslims. We don't see in Shalat everything, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, thanks, so. is the word, yeah. well, we're here at the end of the show. Um, please pray for Pastor Scott. He just uh, posted on, on social media. He's out in California doing a memorial for a, a, a friend of the family out there. So if you think of it, lift up Pastor Scott um, as he does that tomorrow, I believe, is the... Um, tomorrow yes the memorial so please pray for, for pastor scott out there pray and for me we're teaching on ephesians one. Oh, that's yeah you're teaching tomorrow night huh? tonight to, to, oh tonight yeah it's wednesday that's right what day it is that's right i better stick around for the service we have um stick around too if you'd like to join us we're going live in half an hour if not we'll see you again same time same place tomorrow god bless you thanks for being part of a reason for hope you've been listening to a reason for hope thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through god's word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.